Welcome to The Curiosity of A Child. Hello and welcome back. We are doing another spice this episode. A flavour so sought after that it literally changed the world. Built fortunes but took away countless lives. And we always like to start with the tasting, don't we? Mm -hmm. And um, we actually recorded this a couple of days ago. um, And it's always a surprise, you don't know what the spice is. So we're going to head straight over to our high-tech, environmentally controlled spice test centre. <laughs> you join us in our tasting lab where Anton is about to experience the spice. He doesn't know what it is yet, but are you excited? Yep, I am very excited. I've been looking forward to this for quite a long time now. Yeah, so the acoustics might be a bit funny in our lab, as it's a very specially controlled environment. Uh, but hopefully you'll be able to hear us okay. So there are four varieties of the spice that I've got for you here. Okay. And you've also got your mortar and pestle. So I want you to start off with this one here, please, on the end. Okay. So, Can I take the... Uh-huh. And give it a smell and have a look. And what does it look like? Ooh. Ooh. I'm just going to quickly smell this. <gasps> I know I know exactly what that is. What is it? I think it's, it's smelt peppery. Mm-hmm. So is it like peppercorns or something? It is peppercorns. What colour are they, though? They look a little bit like tiny red berries. Yeah, okay, so pop them in the pestle and mortar. Okay, I'll pour it in here. Time for satisfying pestle and mortar sounds. Whilst you're doing that, I'll just do a bit of the uh, science. Okay, I'll pepper. Science, okay. So you are correct. So they are peppercorns. Now, they're a type of berry or droop. Now, a droop is a fruit with a single seed inside. So you can probably hear Anton with the, um, like, grinding up the spices there. So that's like uh, peaches or nutmeg. They're also droops. But botanists are still arguing over whether the uh, peppercorns are actually a berry or a droop. They're not poisonous like most oh. of the berries. <laughs> that smells very nice, actually. I'll just quickly show you. And Do you think I'm done there? Okay, yeah, so he's round it up. So um, probably if you just wet your finger or something and uh, give it a little taste. Okay, I have a slightly bigger bit. Oh. I'm just reaching across to get some myself. Well, that tastes weird. I think I had an almost whole one. <laughs> yeah, it's probably not the best way to eat them like this. Um, so I believe you can actually get these, uh, the red berries fresh. Um, but these are dried ones and they go a little bit flaky, don't they? Yeah. So you got your drink there so that you can clear your mouth. Uh, 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 yeah, I may as well. <laughs> Cloves are still at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. Spices. And if you haven't listened to that episode, make sure you do. All right, next bit now. He's opening the second of the pots. Now, what are these ones? These ones look uh, a little bit darker. They look like something has been done to them. What colour are they? Um, Sort of blacky, slightly greeny and brown sort of colour. Yeah, they'll be green. So if red is fully ripe, what do you think green would be? Very, very old. Uh, they're unripe. Oh. Yeah, so they haven't gone through the whole process yet. Now, these have also been dried... Which annoys me a bit, as I actually found some fresh green ones um, last night. Oh. But we didn't have time to order them for here. Oh. So how do they smell compared they to the red? They smell similar. They smell like... They smell slightly less than the red ones. Okay, like do you want to grind them up? so strong. Okay. Yeah, so that'd be right. So these should actually have a slightly milder taste, as um, it doesn't fully develop until they become riper. They look like, like sort of tiny Brussels sprouts or <laughs> peas. You're making mushy peas then. <laughs> yeah. 
good bit of grinding there. It reminds me a little bit of our quartz medicine episode where you were um, mashing up human brain. Oh, yeah. I think that's okay. Yeah, have a look at that. Well, that's Ooh. a little bit stronger. Wow. Um, that's okay. It doesn't. It's stronger, but it doesn't taste as as much as the other ones. It's quite sharp that flavour to me. I like that. A little bit fruitier as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so now we're going to move on to the more common types of pepper, black and white. So if you open up the next. Oh yeah, clean the yeah, vessel first. Yeah. And after this, maybe, because we got um, some of the remains of them, we'll try them all together. <laughs> the ultimate peppercorn combo. Yeah, obviously they should be used in cooking, so this is an extreme way to do it. But you could imagine um, traders who were going to buy this um, back in, I know, the 1600s, they probably would have been trying the fresh pepper like this. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you can hear this, but I just shook the thing and it sounds really <laughs> nice. Now, what colour are those ones? They are almost completely black with a couple of like slightly brown ones they smell like black pepper <laughs> mm-hmm. okay these aren't any ordinary peppercorns though these are from sarawak in northwestern borneo and they are grown in the rich soil of the mountains there and actually regarded as some of the finest pepper in the world and they were recently awarded a geographical indication status and that means that um, they're protected, so you can't call any other pepper in the world terraric pepper. So it's a bit like how champagne can only be grown in the champagne region. So this is, you, you don't get better pepper than this, really. Okay, I think that's okay. I can't ground that, uh, grind that down too much more. Do you know how they turn black? I'm not sure, because I'll just ground, uh, ground them down. And they're quite white on the inside. Okay, yeah, that's interesting that you've seen the white there, yeah. So they, um, they're picked and then... <laughs> is it strong? Yeah, smell that, actually. I okay. just smelled the whole oh, thing together, yeah. Oh, wow. It smells weird. Yeah, so um, they are picked from the, from the vine. Yep. And then they are laid out in the sun to dry. And then that process makes them ferment a little bit. And then the skins turn black as they dry and they shrivel up. I'll try a bit. Black peppery. That tastes slightly different to regular black pepper. I don't know if it's because it's by itself or... That's really good. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, so black pepper, it's the most potent and the strongest one. Yeah. Uh, with the hottest flavour. What gives pepper its heat is a compound called piperine. Mm-hmm. And most of that can be found in the skin. And when, it's, um, when the compound is purified, it makes um, tiny yellowish needle-like crystals. That's cool. Then peppercorns contain about 5 to 9% pepperin, um, and it's what's called an alkaloid. And um, it will stimulate the heat and pain receptors. Now, do you know who discovered it and what they are more famous for? I'm not sure, actually. Maybe if you tell me the person, I'll be able to identify what else they're famous for. Okay, it was a Dutch scientist and philosopher, Hans Christian Orsted. I don't think I've heard of him. You, ha- you haven't heard of him? Oh. I mean, I probably have, I just didn't remember. <laughs> well, he also discovered or um, first produced aluminium. Oh! Familiar now? Maybe. And he also discovered electromagnetism. So, pretty big discoveries. 
Yeah, <laughs> pretty important. But obviously, both these pale in contrast to uh, yes. discovering Piperin. Mm-hmm. Okay, you've got one more to try now. Let me take that up off that. Ooh. What colour are these? Those. Oh, that's. Why does that feel lighter? <laughs> Wait, it does actually feel. Oh. Um, Most of the weights in the pot. Give them a good smell. Luckily, you haven't sneezed yet. Oh, they smell disgusting. You Do smell they? That. Yeah, they smell awful. You don't know that? I love that. Oh, actually, that smells a little bit. When I first opened the pot to them, it smelled of like amazing, slightly earthy, but that's actually got a hint of farmyard. Yeah, so I get them in smells, there. I'm desperate to try this now. It looks like um, tiny white pumpkins or something. Like really <laughs> small white pumpkins. Okay, whilst you're grinding those, I'll tell you a bit more about these. So okay. again, they come from Sarawak, and that is widely considered to be the best place in the world for white pepper. Okay, so this is the finest white pepper you can buy, because right. this is a high budget podcast. Um, so how do you think they get their white finish? What do you think happens? Do they not get dried in the sun? No, do they, they get. Do they get uh, wet in the rain? Nearly. Sort of. Okay, yeah, so they they do get dried in the sun, like the black peppercorns, but once that's happened, they will... Actually, no, I'm not sure they are dried, actually, at first. Um, But the peppercorns, they're placed into hessian sacks. Then those bags, they will actually be uh, placed into running water, like a river, Mm -hmm. um, for a week. And this is a process called retting, and it loosens and removes the outer skin, leaving the lighter colour beneath. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's how they're produced. I just saw your face then. You don't look so keen on this one. No, I just saw it again once it's crushed, crushed up, seeing if there's any more fragrance, and it just smells even worse. Let's have a taste. <laughs> I like how you just quickly licked your finger and went, let's have a taste. Yeah, I'm prepared for this. <sighs> well, this is how real lab scientists do it. I'm oh, heading so in. Good. That tastes okay. It doesn't taste a loads, though. How strong is it? Not particularly. Oh, oh, ah, I thought it was going to be a massive, like, oh, it was. That's quite strong. Really? It takes a second. I've yeah, it's got a bit of a tongue. kick. But it's much milder than the other peppers. Mm-hmm. And you usually find this um, ground into really fine powder. Uh, so it works <laughs> really well in sauces <laughs> because um, you don't get dark flecks like you would with uh, black pepper. I think it's had a reaction with Anton here. <laughs> it's stuck in my throat. Have a bit more of a drink. Now, I actually got um, my special peppers from a website called Sous Chef, mm-hmm. who wished us good luck on this episode. <gasps> Wait a minute. Sous Chef's what we got with the really nice noodles from, well, spaghetti thing from, yeah. wasn't it? No yeah. Way. Yeah. So they wished us good luck. So uh, hello and thank you if you are listening. Maybe um, they'll be listening in the future. Yeah. And uh, yeah, well, yeah, they're not listening right now. <laughs> um, and they've got lots of really cool ingredients in there that you can't normally find. <laughs> anyway, so you've tested the four different types of pepper here. So you, I hope you've noticed the difference between the stages of uh, the ripening and the different processes there. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's really hard to judge them properly as uh, pepper would be used during cooking or as a seasoning, ain't it, rather than tasting it like this. But did you have a favourite? I think I quite liked the second one we did. The green one? Yeah. I'd like to get some fresh ones, actually, and make some yeah. proper peppercorn sauce. Well, I think I'm going to try and do. I don't know if you've um, got any more things to say, but I'm going to crush them all together and we okay. can have a 
jumbo taste. Yeah, sure. Whilst you're doing that, I will uh, just say that. Um, so now that you've tasted all four variations of the world's most popular spice, mm. are you ready to learn all about its history, folklore, science, and medicinal uses? Okay. <laughs> Great. So uh, let's head over to the studio in the future. And we're back. These smells of the pepper were amazing, weren't they? Yeah, that was really... Uh, some of them smell a little bit strange, but I, I enjoyed most of them. <laughs> yeah, they were good, yeah. All the different types we tried. And it's maybe something we take for granted because it's such a commonly used spice. But this wasn't always the case. What today you'll find given away virtually for free on every table of every restaurant in the world has a long and often dark history. Uh-oh. Fighting, slavery, wars, persecution, extinctions are all part of the tale of pepper. Voltaire wrote in 1756. After the year 1500, there was no pepper to be had at Calicut. That was not dyed red with blood. Yeah, that's a pretty uh, ominous quote, that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But it's also held great value and brought great wealth to many people. The modern global trade network was built upon a foundation of peppercorns. But first of all, what are peppercorns? I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> okay. Do you want to find out? Sure. <laughs> For the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, they are the fruit of the Pippa nigrum, which is a flowering vine in the Pipparaceae family. And the word pepper is derived from the Sanskrit word pipapali. Okay. <laughs> it's pipali. Pipali. Oh, it is, yes, thank you. Yeah, Pipali, like I said. Um, actually, you might notice the acoustics are different. I'm just going to mention we are recording in a new studio today, aren't we? Mm-hmm. We're pretty much recording in a rainforest at the moment, so. Yeah, we are in a rainforest surrounded by plants. Um, <laughs> we'll try and put a, a photo in the show notes. Anyway, speaking of plants, I've got here a photo of, or a illustration rather, of Pepper. Mm-hmm. So you can see the shape of the leaves. Now, it's native to the Malabar coast in India. That is a long, thin stretch down the southwest of the country. Um, It's a coastal region. But recent studies have looked at how modern pepper and its related species evolved and moved over millions of years as the Gowanda supercontinent broke apart. You know, the massive supercontinent, yeah, that Mm -hmm. split apart and kind of reconfigured in different ways. Um, And they discovered that there are several waves of influx of um, pepper-related plants over millions of years as the geography changed. But today it's growing in many places, with Ethiopia and Vietnam being the world's largest producers, followed by Brazil, where the Japanese set up plantations in the 1930s. And it loves um, a wet, warm climate um, of the tropics, uh, but it also requires shade and well-drained soil. Hmm. Now, pepper alone accounts for about 20% of all the world's global uh, spice imports. That's a lot. It is the world's most widely traded spice. Good to cover then. With over a million tons traded every year. So that's about 140 grams for every person on earth. Wow. Being a vine, it depends on other plants which it climbs up and it can reach a height of about four meters and it has what's called cordate shaped leaves. Which is like sort of a, an upside down heart, but not too much. Uh, the, the, the curves aren't too. If you've got an upside down heart, you would say like the buttocks of the curves are not too <laughs> pronounced. Yep. <laughs> um, then 
it's flowering, so it's a flowering vine, and then the flowers grow on spikes of typically 20 to 30 fruits um, are produced in each one. So that's the pepper, mm-hmm. or the peppercorns. Um, then they start off green, and as they ripen, they turn red, as we said in the tasting. Um, and then the spikes are collected, and then they're laid out in the sun to dry. And then the droops are removed, or the berries, depending who you ask, probably. So that's our basics of the biology of pepper, okay? Mm-hmm. Not going too deep there. It's odd looking at you as we record, sitting yeah, opposite me. It's it's weird because before we were recording next to each other and now we're looking at each other and I've got like a screen on my left and my co-host on my right. Yeah, hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so should we get into some of the history then of Pepper? Mm-hmm. It's been incredibly valued throughout history. It's equally dangerous to collect for the Pepper plants are protected by snakes. Really? Uh-huh. 7th century polymath Isidore of Seville tells the story in a book 17 of his etymologies. Pepper comes from groves of trees in India. These groves are guarded by poisonous serpents. Really? Okay, mm-hmm. that's not the history I'd found. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, so Isidore's sources for this included Pliny's Natural History and a letter to the Emperor Hadrian on the marvels of the East. Now, Pliny the Elder wrote... It is quite surprising that the use of pepper has come so much into fashion, seeing that in other substances which we use, it is sometimes their sweetness and sometimes their appearance that has attracted our notice, whereas pepper has nothing that it can plead as a recommendation to either fruit or berry, its only desirable quality being a certain pungency. And yet it is for this that we import it all the way from India. Who was the first to make a trial of it as an article of food. That's something I always find fascinating is, yeah, who were the first people who discover and start tasting all these different spices and understand their uses? Who discovered, like, poison ivy and stuff? Yeah, so. probably somebody fooling in it. <laughs> um, yeah, so this story of um, serpents protecting um, the pepper remains a long time um Bartholomew the Englishman which I love as a name he lived in the 13th century um wrote pepper is a seed of the fruit of the tree that groweth in the south hills of the Cascus in the strong heat of the sun and serpents keep the woods that their pepper groweth in and when the woods are pepper ripe men of that country set them on fire and chase away the serpents by violence of fire and by such burning the grain of pepper that was white by nature is made black so what I said about drying out in the sun earlier might be wrong. It might actually be that there's a fire to scare away the serpents. What do you reckon? I'm not entirely sure. Maybe it is drying in the sun. Yeah, mm. that's what we do today, I believe. I, I did I did say that I... Well, I did introduce the snake story, so I should probably believe the snake story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, have you ever seen it or visited a pepper plantation? No. Exactly, so we don't know, do we? Mm-hmm. We, get, we can only believe what we're told. Mm-hmm. Now, no doubt this story was kept alive by Arab traders who brought the spice to India. So why do you think they'd do that? Um, maybe so it's harder for them to collect or something, so I'm not sure, actually. Well, there'd be the growers in India, mm-hmm. and then there'd be, across the um, Indian Ocean, you'd have the Arab sailors and traders. Yeah. So it'd be to help keep the value up, because it keeps yeah. it very kind of always mythological, doesn't it? 
Um, it's only when the Europeans started to travel to India during the 16th and 17th centuries that the truth started to come out. And in the mid-1500s, the Portuguese physician Garcia de Orta wrote a treatise on medicinal plants of India and included this amazing illustration of Pependigram. And I actually think it looks like something a Cubist artist would create mm-hmm. a few hundred years later. It's quite cool. Uh-huh. I'm going to have that in the show notes. Around the same time, the English traveller and merchant Peter Monday would actually describe the plant and the process. And also wrote that it reminded him of ivy. So how valuable do you think pepper was? I'm not entirely sure, but you said pepper was quite valuable. So, quite valuable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, Leslie found two peppercorns stuffed up the nostrils of Ramesses the Great, and he was mummified. So that's back in um, 1213 BCE. Mm-hmm. But I want to know, is, how didn't he sneeze? I'm not sure, actually. <laughs> I mean, I didn't sneeze when I was smelling the um, peppers, so maybe not everyone does. Ah, that's true, you didn't actually, did you? Um, okay, so uh, when the Goths sacked Rome in 410 CE, their leader, Alaric, he asked for 2,300 kilograms of gold, um, just over 13,000 kilograms of silver, 4,000 silk tunics, 3,000 scarlet hides, and how much pepper? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 1,300 kilograms of pepper. Wow, that's a lot. That is a lot, isn't it? Uh-huh. Uh, and pepper was also regularly used as a currency in the Middle Ages. Um, and the term as dear as pepper was used to describe something very expensive. After the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588, King Philip II of Spain, he didn't actually have enough silver to pay off his debts, so he used pepper coins instead. So it shows also how much of it must have been coming into Europe, mm-hmm. um, but also how viable it still was. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't always requested in large quantities, uh, because the Trinity Church in New York and that received a charter from King William III, which was a annual rent of one peppercorn. <laughs> um, but that wasn't paid until fairly recently when Queen Elizabeth II, she received 279 peppercorns. <laughs> but as I said, pepper has a history as dark as its colour. So shall we delve into how it became the world's favourite spice? And along the way, built the fortunes of few, but the suffering for many. Okay. So pepper has a long history, and it's been widely used and traded for thousands of years, as we've briefly covered. And Plato said, Pepper is small in quantity and great in virtue. And um, Hippocrates, he recommended mixing pepper with various herbs as a treatment for fever. Um, Then the first century Roman cookbook, (laughs) um, Apicurus, um, it calls for pepper to be used in about 470 recipes in the book. That's quite a few. And uh, here's one recipe that came from it. Wait, I bet you... Wait, just before that. <laughs> uh, I bet that it was like... 500 ancient Roman cookbook recipes or something. And 470 of <laughs> them had pepper in them. Yeah, how to cook like a Roman. <laughs> um, yeah, so here's one recipe from it. Kids stew. Yeah, so um, I think I might have to try this one later. Now, this isn't a kid like you. It's a um, a goat. Oh. So this is hot kid or lamb stew. <laughs> the Romans were even trading with India in the first century CE, and their ships would sail across the Red Sea 
and then across the Indian Ocean, and it took about 40 days for them to do that. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't really that far away, in mm. a way. Was it 40 days travel? It's not too bad. Yeah, that's not too far. Mm. You don't think of a mixing, necessarily, of India and the Romans. Mm-hmm. However, with the fall of their empire... Um, the direct route to the spice was cut off and the only source of pepper would have been through the Arab traders who we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you could say that Europeans, well, mainly the Western ones, rediscovered it during the Crusades um, when they came into contact with the East again and all the th- ex- exotic things like the spices and the silk. And I think you found some more old recipes, didn't you? Yes. I'll tell you some of them. <laughs> Thank you. A medieval Italian cookbook said an ounce, about 30 grams, um, of pepper, cinnamon, ginger, and also cloves and saffron go well with all food. I'd like to put that in a yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> in 1264, saucier master William made a sauce with nine kilograms of pepper. <laughs> wow. In for a feast. Um... And for his wedding in 1468, Duke Carl of Bourguignon ordered nearly 150 kilograms of pepper. That can pay a lot of church debts for the New York church. You could, yeah. That, that's <laughs> Wow, that's a millennium of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wealthy people would also pass the spice plates around after their feast, showing off their money. Oh, yeah. Um, I think you can see there how maybe people's palates and tastes have changed mm. over time. Because we'd only had a few grams of pepper today, if that, that nine kilograms, whatever it was, in the yeah. sauce. I mean, that's insane. Yeah. Makes you that is what... the sauce. You just turn it into, like, peppercorn mm. paste. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, pepper was an important symbol and part of life for the rich and powerful. So access to it and being able to attain it easily and at a good price was really important to them. So in the 1600s, pepper accounted for as much as 80% of the value of all spice shipments to Western Europe. Uh, And this was when Venice was at its height. So the spice would travel on Indian and Arab ships across the Indian Ocean and uh, to the Red Sea. And they would be carried overland up the Nile to Alexandria and onto the Mediterranean coast, where Venetian and Genoan ships would take it to Italy. And from there it would be further traded around Europe. So it's a long route with many stops and challenges to all parties involved and then each adding their own fee to the price. But with the rising power of Western European nations and the ever-growing demand for the riches of the East, people started trying to break the monopoly held on the trade by Venice. And the first to truly do this were the Portuguese, who were making steady progress sailing down the west coast of Africa. And in 1488 they rounded the Cape for the first time, so right around the bottom of (laughs) Africa. Then um, ten years later, explorer Vasco da Gama, he would sail his fleet up past uh, Madagascar and across the Indian Ocean to Calicut in India um, for the first time. And that was a really vibrant pepper trading port. Mm-hmm. So I'll try and put some maps in the show notes and there's one for you here, so hopefully you can see. Just about. Yeah, that you they would see the line. <laughs> now, a French seaman, Francois Parard, would later describe the city of Calicut as... Between the town and the king's palace, there is nothing but houses and there is no place in all India where contentment is more universal than at Calicut. 
both on account of the beauty and fertility of the country and of all the intercourse with men of all races who live there in free exercise of their own religions. Brilliant French accent there. <laughs> I was doing a past French accent, you never know. That's very true, actually. Yeah, so it sounds like the city was a real melting pot. Um, so the rulers were Hindu, but... Melting uh, pot? Mixing pot. Mixing pot, yes. A mixing pot. Um, the rulers were Hindu, um, but there were also Muslim traders from the Middle East and North Africa and large numbers of Chinese traders and lots of other people there. And it sounds like they were all living pretty happily there and in harmony. Mm-hmm. But then the Europeans arrived. <sighs> this <Yay>. old trip. <laughs> when asked why the Gamma's party had landed, their reply was, Christians and spices. <laughs> I don't know what accent that was. Um, and along their journey to Calicut, they'd hidden their motives and identity, and they'd also taken hostages for protection. And they showed little respect for their host in Calicut, and the entire land wished them ill. So they didn't make a very good impression. During his second expedition, he came across a Muslim boat carrying about 380 men, women and children, which he burnt, killing everybody on board. Why? I don't know. <laughs> Just because, yeah. <laughs> um, but it was also dangerous for the sailors. Um, and from that voyage, only about 55 of the original 148 crew survived. Good. <laughs> well, not all the sailors wanted to be there. Um, so they weren't all... Horrible people, I'm guessing. But that, that survival rate was fairly typical of the time. And the entire voyage could take up to two years. Um, and it's really important to be timed properly to catch the trade winds. Because, of course, you're going all the way around Africa here. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a massive, dangerous journey. Um, but the spices that they received could be viable enough to set them up for life. So it's worth that risk. I mean, it might be the best option for you. Mm-hmm. And then the, on their second voyage, they brought home 5,500 kilograms of pepper. And I think I'm going to sneeze. This is very fitting. Okay, maybe not. Okay. <laughs> and um, this was the first sign of disruption in the whole spice trade by Europeans. Now, as the number of voyages increased, so did the trade opportunities. Um, an Italian, Andre Coselli, he noted in 1515 um, that it was just as profitable to take pepper from India to China as it was to go back to Portugal with it. And it could reach four times its price when sold if you're selling it to the Chinese. So it's a good markup. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So whilst there were Chinese merchants operating in the area, it seems their numbers had dropped by the time the Portuguese arrived. Marco Polo, during his travels, he observed um, that for every one ship heading to Europe, there would be about 100 from China. So this was a little bit earlier, okay? And in the 1400s, now I'm going to say his name wrong here, so I forgot to look up the pronunciation. But uh, Zheng He, the Admiral of the Chinese Treasure Fleet, um, he widely sailed the China Sea and the Indian Ocean, mm-hmm. and even all the way onto Africa. And these were much larger ships than mm-hmm. the European ones. And his expeditions were massive, because there's one which had 300 ships and nearly 28,000 crew. Woo. So far exceeded anything the Europeans were capable of at the time, where they sent a few hundred people around on a couple of boats. Mm-hmm. Then after um, Zheng He's death, though, in the 1430s, um, the treasure fleet uh, began to decline when Zhu uh, Gaozi became. Gaozi. I'm pronouncing these wrong, I do apologise. <laughs> um, became emperor in 1424. And one of his first orders was actually to stop all of the voyages mm-hmm. of the treasure fleet. And nobody's exactly sure why that was done, but it could be his Confucian beliefs clashed with um, like the value of trade. 
Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to think what would have happened if China had maintained its power in the region. Yeah. Sort of topical today, actually. Mm-hmm. So the the Portuguese, they began to gain control of various towns and cities um, on their trading route, and they built fortresses in an attempt to control the pepper trade. And in 1510, they captured uh, Goa in India, which is about midway down the west coast. Mm-hmm. Twelve years later, they captured Malacca in Malaysia, which was a key port controlling the sea lane to China. Mm-hmm. So it goes between um, like the Malaysian mainland and Borneo. So it's a really thin strip, so it's far easier to sail through this channel than round it. Mm-hmm. And um, when Europeans first arrived in the city, they were awestruck. The city of Malacca is the richest seaport with the greatest number of wholesale merchants and abundance of shipping and trade that can be found in the whole world. Yeah, so really vibrant seaport, which I think is something we forget about because we have such a Eurocentric history. Mm-hmm. Again, this port was a real melting pot of people and cultures from across Wait. Asia and even Africa. So it was melting pot. You've changed it from a mixing pot to melting Yeah, I think it's, it's meant to be melting pot. Oh, well. Yeah. Well, we're just inventing new language in terms here. That's, mm-hmm. that's how big we are with that power. <laughs> um, one Portuguese ambassador said, Whoever is Lord of Malacca has his hand on the throat of Venice. Yeah, so remember they're trying to break that, the spice trade going through Venice. He was also the first European to describe chopsticks. <laughs> so when they attacked Malacca, um, it was led by somebody called Alfonso de Albuquerque. And a Malaysian observer described the attack as such. And the Franks engaged with the men of Malaccan battle, and they fired their cannon on their ship, so that the cannonballs came in like rain, and the noise of the cannon was the noise of thunder in the heavens and the flashes of fire, and their guns were like the flashes of lightning in the sky. And the noise of their matlocks was like that of groundnuts popping in the frying pan. So I think groundnuts aren't quite as scary as thunder and lightning. Mm. So it was a really savage and brutal conquest. Mm-hmm. Ferdinand Magellan was part of the fighting for Malacca. He is famous for leading the first circ- circumnavigation of the world. He died during it. <laughs> um, but aboard his ship for his voyage around the world was a man from Malaysia, Enrique of Malacca. He is thought to be the first person to ever circle the globe. Yeah, so I, I like that, actually. He's, whilst I think he's pretty much a captive aboard, I, I like the idea that um, whilst Europeans were out trying to conquer half the world, the first person to go around it was actually somebody who they uh, <laughs> had mm-hmm. taken from their home. So they get that credit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so after taking the city, to Albuquerque used slave labour to build a medieval-style fortress overlooking um, the city. And it was actually built from the ruins of mosques and using oh. stones from mausoleums of former... Malaysian sultans and religious buildings. Oh. You don't really get much more disrespectful than that. Yeah. Um, and we're going to have a quick break here because I believe that you found some ancient medicinal uses of pepper. Mm-hmm. So, Greek physician Dioscorides <laughs> um, recommended putting pepper in a drink to cure shakes and fevers, cure, and even cure venomous bites, um, and even all diseases about the breast, whether it be licked in or received by a drink. Licked in, okay. And I've actually got some here. You've got some as well in your cup. Uh, don't want to try it. <laughs> Just have a tiny sip. 
What do you think? I don't know if I've really got much from that sip, but I think it could be slightly spicy. And there's a bay leaf in there. Um, but it just tastes mostly of warm water. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a real um, spicy kind of kick to my I, I can feel it in my I chest got, now. I got, I got a little bit, but I only had a sip. But that... I, that could work. <laughs> yeah, I could definitely see that helping out with, uh, what was it? All diseases about the breast. Yes. Um, which I can feel warmth in my chest now. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I believe you've got another one of the raisins here as well, which you're uh-huh. giving me. Uh, so you can chew the raisins to draw down thin phlegm out of the head. <laughs> or drink it with bay leaves, again, uh, to drive this away gnawing. Okay, so let's try this. We've got some peppery raisins here. So there should be the sweetness of those. That actually tastes tastes good. You like that, do you? Mm-hmm. I prefer them coated in chocolate. That's all right. <laughs> or yogurt. Yeah, it tastes okay. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> My hand sinks a pepper. <laughs> so, are you feeling refreshed and healthier? Um, a little bit. I I think that that drink could actually help with something. Maybe it maybe that drink could help with a cold or something. Maybe. So across the strait from Malacca uh, lies the island of Sumatra and as you know it's covered in lush forests and mountains mm-hmm. um, and the central highlands are um, where all the peppers grow, it's a really rich pepper growing region. Then they float it down the rivers uh, to the coastal trading regions on little rafts. Um, at the northern tip of the island is the province of Akka and the port of Banda Akka. So I've got a map here I'll put in the show notes. Mm-hmm. But for you, Anton, I've circled it in green, okay? okay. Um, and then you see the little green dot Yep. down here? That's Malacca. So you see this thin strait. So ah, you yeah. see that's a really important shipping lane. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this large, powerful region at the top um, of Malacca. Now, with the Portuguese controlling Malacca, um, Akka quickly grew to become a powerful trading port where it attracted Muslim traders who couldn't operate elsewhere due to the Portuguese control. Now, the Muslim traders, uh, they're soon be followed by British and Dutch ships as the balance of power uh, began to shift. And this was highlighted by a British merchant um, saying that the port lieth well to the answerer <laughs> to the trade of Bengala, Java and the Moluccos and all China to the decrease and diminishing of all Portugal's trade and their great forces in the Indies. But with the arrival of more European powers came more brutality. And on their second expedition to Indonesia in 1598, the Dutch, led by Cotilius Hootman, um, attacked the port of Bantam, bombarding it and um, killing prisoners that they'd taken as well. Um, then returning several years later, this time to Anchor, um, the Dutch met with the Sultan. He had never heard of the land from which the Dutch had come, but he had somehow heard of England. I wanted to meet an Englishman. <laughs> and by luck, the Dutch actually had a skilled English navigator called John Davis aboard. <laughs> Such a boring name. Like You hear all the um, awesome dudes like Alfonso, whatever the dude was. Yeah, Albuquerque. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we just get John Davis, the skilled English navigator. I know, I've been thinking of doing an episode on kind of all these amazing names from history. Mm-hmm. I would think, oh, they sound so cool. And um, just who they are, if it's like names you should know. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, so he was sent to speak with the Sultan. The Sultan asked about the Queen, Elizabeth I, um, and how she had managed to defeat the Spanish. Somehow news of the destruction of the Armada had reached where he was, um, mm. so he probably travelled with the traders. A month later, Cornelius was poisoned, and his brother was taken prisoner. <gasps> so obviously a bit of fighting and intrigue and stuff going on there. And uh, the Sultan was a powerful leader, and he didn't want these men from distant lands trying to take over as what had happened just across the water in Malacca. So he's trying to protect his interests in the region, which is understandable. Fearing that the Dutch would come to dominate the spice trade, the British East India Company was formed on the 13th of February 1601. And then the first ships to set sail uh, from London were headed by a man called James Lancaster. Mm-hmm. The Dutch had already been trading in the region for a while, as we know, uh, but they formalised their own um, company, the Dutch East India Company, in 1602. So with these two rival powers, um, the trade and also the conflict that they carried along with them was only going to grow. Actually took the first British ships 16 months to reach Acre, and there many arrived, Lancaster sent some men ashore just to tell of their arrival. And uh, with them they had a handwritten letter from Queen Elizabeth to the great and mighty king of Acre. But they refused to hand this over to the envoy and they insisted that they be allowed to deliver it by hand themselves. Now, in the letter, the Queen asked for permission to trade and also uh, to launch attacks against the Spanish, Portuguese and the Dutch. She wrote that God had ordained that the one land may have need of the other and thereby not only breed an intercourse and exchange of their merchandise and fruits, which do so superabound in some countries the want in others, but also engender love and friendship between all men, a thing naturally divine. Now, Lancaster and more of his crew um, had come ashore, and in the distance they heard the sound of drums and trumpets. Fantastic. Um, And a large crowd and six elephants were approaching, and they were there to carry the visitors to the Sultan. This, This is Lancaster, not the Queen, okay? Okay. The biggest of these elephants was about 13 or 14 feet high, which had a small castle-like coach upon its back, covered with crimson velvet. In the middle, thereof was a great basin of gold and a piece of silk exceedingly wrought over uh, to cover it, under which Her Majesty's letter was put. Yeah, so an elephant with like a, a really fancy castle on the back to carry a letter. <laughs> yes. Um, so Lancaster delivered um, the letter and also gifts from the Queen to the Sultan and they feasted together. So there are lots of dances and music and the banquet and food and all sorts going on. Mm-hmm. I think the Sultan offered some really strong alcohol, which Lancaster asked if he could dilute it and make it a bit weaker, which he was allowed to. <laughs> um, but could you imagine being there like this other world, really mysterious and far from home, which not many people had really visited before, nobody who knew probably, and really exotic. Um, on a mission from your queen as well. I mean, it's... That's pretty cool. Yeah. The English, they left with gifts from the Sultan, but more importantly, free entry into the port and also custom-free trade. But the Sultan did not allow them to build a factory or sign an exclusive trade agreement, so he's still wanting to control his region, which makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Uh, so the English, they're actually a little bit disappointed, but good progress had been made. But there were two problems. Now, the first was that there wasn't actually enough pepper to fill their ships. <laughs> and the second was the pepper that was there was more expensive than uh, they'd expect it to be. Mm-hmm. But no problem. They decided a little piracy would do the job instead. So they decided to attack Portuguese ships heading out to the Strait of Malacca. 
And this greatly pleased the sultan, who said, If there be anything here in my kingdom, may you pleasure thee. I would be glad to giraffe thy good will. <laughs> Gratify. <laughs> I read it as giraffe. Is there an old, an old-fashioned spelling? I, I kind of got it though, because giraffe. Tw- oh, I keep kicking the, kicking the plant. Um, I can't talk even. I just said killing the plant instead of kicking the plant as well. Then. And apparently, the sultan had also asked for a fine Portuguese lady to be brought back from the ship as well when they were doing their, their piracy but uh, Lancaster hadn't done this and he said oh, I couldn't find any lady beautiful enough to um, for you Sultan mm-hmm. and um, I think they kind of bonded over that as well um, mm-hmm. and obviously you don't really want to just take slaves so Lancaster uh, he sent two of the four ships on their um, from their little fleet um, home whilst the others continued to trade and strike deals before setting home for England themselves and they arrived back home in September 1603 and the country had changed a bit. Uh, the Queen was dead. Uh, and there was plague. It changed just a bit. And pepper prices had fallen. Oh, and that, that didn't work, did it? No, and uh, half the crew were dead. Ah. So not a great start. No. Okay, so let's go back to um, Malaysia. And in 1607, the Sultan's grandson um, became ruler of Akka. And he was a powerful leader. And he used his own ships to trade with India. And he began a campaign to take control of nearby cities. So he's trying to expand his region in the north of um, Sumatra. Mm-hmm. And for a while, he even blocked English and Dutch merchants from the city. And he raised a fleet of 236 ships and nearly 20,000 men. And he attacked Malacca in 1629. But after a bloody conflict, um, he was unable to take it from the Portuguese because they were protected inside the fortress they'd made out mm-hmm. of with this uh, stain from mausoleums and things. Yeah, well, it looks like they're catching up with one those Chinese um, fleets, aren't they? Other oh, treasure fleet, yeah. yeah. This is a much more regional thing, though. This is just going across a small strait of water, not spanning oceans. The feasts and festivities of the old sultan were a thing of the past, as armed conflict and the battle for trade intensified. Yeah, certainly did. Um, and the Dutch were particularly brutal in trying to monopolise the trade, blockading ports um, that refused to deal with them and killing anyone who traded with anybody else. Sounds like me and Civ 6. <laughs> it does sound like <laughs> yes. And they're taking control of many of the Portuguese holdings in India, so down the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, but the important city of Calicut invited the British to make a factory in the port. So obviously they don't want the Dutch to get full control there. Mm-hmm. So whilst they'd probably rather have no Europeans having as much control, it makes sense for them to invite the British in, just to stop yeah. the monopoly there. And the East India trading companies, they were a bit like semi-military organisations. Mm-hmm. So they weren't just trading. Their job was both trade and battle. So controlling lands, protecting the vessels, uh, started dealing in the local politics to further their gains. So there'd be as much a military force as they would a, a like a trading force. Mm-hmm. As they continued their expansion into Sumatra, They've become more and more involved in local conflicts, supporting mm-hmm. various um, different sides and different or factions in local conflicts um, as they were all trying to get the upper hand in their rivals. And when civil war broke out in Bantam in 1681, um, the Dutch saw this as the perfect opportunity. They supported the Sultan's son against his father um, and the British. And an English merchant wrote, "'Tis said the Dutch have more forces coming, and if they all land their men, Undoubtedly, Bantam is theirs. We stand to the fate of war, our factory being in the midst of danger. 
Yeah, so it's a, middle, it's a war zone now where this pep is coming from. And you've mm. got the European powers um, helping different local leaders. Mm. So the Dutch attacked and they took control of the town. And the British and the other merchants, they, they took hiding in their factories. But the locals probably weren't so lucky. Um, and they installed the son as the new sultan. Mm-hmm. But he was a puppet of the Dutch. And um, they ordered the British to leave, which they did. And not even the sultan's own sons were allowed to approach him without permission from the Dutch. I mean, I'd be quite happy with that. (laughs) (laughs) Took a second to realise. And uh, yes, the Dutch were now in complete control. um, But the battle for the king of spices isn't over. The Dutch East India Company was known as the VAC. And their commander, uh, Magnus Wickerman, said in 1701... Pepper is the bride around which everyone dances on this coast, and she has many lovers, namely the English, Danish, British, and Soret traders. But the most important competitors the company must face in the trade are the English, the biggest and the most harmful of them all. So that shows the intense rivalry there. Mm-hmm. So with the Dutch having control of northern Sumatra, the British needed to look for new ports and suppliers of pepper. And they settled in Beghulen, which is in the southwest of the island. But unlike Akka um, in the north, um, this place was hell for the Europeans. Because Akka's got a really pleasant climate, apparently. Mm-hmm. It's like for Europeans. Um, yeah, so down in um, Bekulen, disease was rife. The climate was much less hospitable. And the local sultan's forces often attacked as well. Mm-hmm. An English East India Company officer uh, called Ralph Ord, he wrote in 1690... Our people daily die, and now we are in the worse condition than ever. For we have now neither men to make a grave to bury ye dead, and none to carry the dead corpse out of the town. Yeah, so in a pretty bad state by the sounds of it. Mm-hmm. But this didn't stop the um, East India Company from investing. And they built Fort Marlborough um, in the 1710s. And I think it really shows that this is more than just commerce. It's also something about control, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because that's quite a large fort there. Yes. That was built. <laughs> Looks cool, though. It doesn't seem that the majority of the British who were there serving there actually enjoyed it. Yeah, because you said earlier, like, sailing across the ships, they didn't probably weren't too happy, but you would, like, risk it to get a fortune. Like, it might be the similar here as well. Yeah, well, there was a story I read of, I think it's the Dutch, um, Dutch or Portuguese sailors, where they would actually have to chain them mm-hmm. to the ship when they set sail, and only when they had left port would they release them. He said, basically kidnapped them to be on the ships. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so the British weren't happy to be there either. I've got a list of their consumption of alcohol for July. <laughs> Just July. 17, 16 here. So are you ready? 74 dozen and a half of wine, mostly claret, 24 dozen and a half of Burton ale and pale beer, two pipes, each 105 gallons, 42 gallons of Madeira wine, six flasks of Saraz, a Persian wine, and 164 gallons of Gerber toddy. So that's a lot. That's one month. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And the problem is um, the bill for this wine was more than they made an entire year <laughs> trading pepper. <laughs> So, yeah, I don't think they would have got much work done either. <laughs> Must have had a permanent headache. Yes. So, uh, yeah, it's never a profitable venture for the British. <laughs> but it's really important to still have um, a presence in the region. Um, so the Dutch wouldn't have complete control. So it was, we've got to be there. Even if we're losing money, just 
Yeah. But with the losses, uh, as they increased, so did the brutality. The locals were forced to cultivate pepper at the expense of growing enough food to actually feed themselves. Mm-hmm. And the English destroyed the system of uh, growing and trade that had operated for years with it being grown up in the highlands and brought down to mm-hmm. the coastal regions. Um, and this caused a lot of social issues and made life in, like, incredibly difficult. Um, but of course, the locals were to blame for the problems. Yes. And a report from Fort Marlborough stated, Malays are stubborn, ignorant people. It is a very difficult task to make them sensible of their interest. The lenity which your honours have always recommended uh, to us have no effect upon such illiterate dispositions. Yeah, so it's basically saying, oh, the reason we're not profitable here is not because we're really drunk all the time. <laughs> um, it's because um, the, the, the locals are obviously uh, lazy and stupid. Which is clearly not true. <laughs> There's that pepper sneeze. There you go. <laughs> um, they've clearly been trading absolutely fine and living absolutely fine for hundreds or thousands of years, haven't they? Mm-hmm. Um, but no, everyone held these views, thankfully. Um, Sir Stamford Raffles. <coughs> oh, excuse me. But keep those sneezes in. Sir Stamford <laughs> Raffles and his wife arrived in 1818. Uh, so this is 100 years later now, okay? Um, but nothing had really improved. True. And he wrote... It will be pretty obvious that the population is effectually enslaved. The country has been nearly depopulated and the remaining labourers charged with the additional duties of those who are no more to be found have nearly lost all character and energy. If a planter does not cultivate his stipulated number of vines or deliver his proper produce of pepper, he is punished. So do you think this is a nice place to be living? Mm-mm. Do you think it's nice treatment? Mm-mm. No, horrible, isn't it? So they're, they're basically just walking shells of people. Raffles, who I want to call Ruffles. Oh. I say I want to call them Ruffles. Oh. <laughs> um, Raffles really fell in love with Sumatra and um, he explored deep into the interior, advocating for improved conditions. But he still felt... Sumatra should undoubtedly be under the influence of one European power alone. And this power is, of course, the English. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, well, best of many people, still not... Great. Yeah, still not great. And very much, oh, well, we're, we're, we're civilised Europeans. Ha <laughs> ha! As you can see in that photo, it's really dense rainforest there. So imagine cool. this plantation. Think of it like in Minecraft and you find a village in the forest. Something. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, now, Raffles, he would collect rare manuscripts and documents and art and animals and birds and plants and all sorts from all over Sumatra. And yeah, he made a great collection there. He wanted to learn about the local um, history and culture. And there's a lovely story of one of a, a young boy who's one of his aides, a local boy, just having like really loving words for him. Um, so it seemed that he actually made a good impression on the people. But whilst he was there, um, four of his children would die and his own health would suffer a lot as well. So when the British closed Ben Coolin in 1824, he was going to travel home and the ship on which he was travelling unfortunately caught fire and he lost his precious collection of treasures um, that recorded his beloved island. And unfortunately, these were really rare manuscripts. So it said that um, like the local culture and language and everything suffered a lot from that piece of destruction. Think of um, a great library burning down or something. So with the British gone, Sumatra was left to the Dutch who enforced an even stricter policy of forced labour and undid what 
good work that Sir Raffles had tried to do himself. Mm-hmm. And the English would agree to carve up Southeast Asia, with the British getting India and the Dutch Sumatra. And a local Sumatran ruler said, Against the transfer of my country, I protest. Who is there possessed of authority to hand me and my countrymen, like so many cattle, over to the Dutch or to any other power? If the English are tired of us, then let them go away. But I deny their right to hand us over to the Dutch. We were conquered, and I now tell the English and Dutch gentlemen here assembled that, had I the power and the will, I would resist this transfer to the knife. I am, however, a poor man, have no soldiers to cope with yours, and must submit. So what do you think of that? I think he's thinking of the right thing. <laughs> yeah, so a local leader there. But he's right, his, his country's just being handed over between European powers, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Over the next decades, the Dutch would subdue more and more peoples of the islands. But in the north, the powerful region of Akka, the place of all those amazing feasts and the elephants 200 years earlier, would remain free. But not forever. And the Dutch would attack. But the battle to take control of it would last 30 years and 10,000 Dutch and 50,000 locals would be killed and a brutal guerrilla campaign would be fought for years in the jungles. And it would actually take until World War II and the Japanese invasion to finally remove the Dutch. Mm -hmm. But after the war, most of the pepper plantations were abandoned and Sumatra never regained its importance as a pepper producer. Oh no. Yeah. That's a long time, actually. If it's until World War Two and the Dutch were removed. Yeah. It's about 500 years in total, it must be, mm-hmm. really. And there's so much more to tell in the history of Pepper and the trades, because I've not even touched on the American ships arriving in the 1800s. Um, the first American military intervention overseas mm-hmm. was over Pepper. Um, and also the first American millionaires made their fortunes in trading Pepper. Mm-hmm. Um, Elihu Yale, um, the founder of the university bearing his own name, actually financed much of it through the Pepper trade. But that's where we're going to end the history now, I think. Um, so what, what do you make of that? There was quite a lot of fighting. Um, you can definitely tell that Pepper was important mm-hmm. as well. Um, but I don't think it was very fair on the Sumatran people. No, or, or other peoples in the region as well. Mm-hmm. But it's amazing how this one spice can become such a powerful... Um, sort of thing that would affect and change the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started off looking at a bit of ancient history, the Greeks and the Romans, and they used pepper as much for a medicine as for a spice for kicking. Mm-hmm. And today scientists are again exploring the medicinal properties of pepper. Uh, but you've also had for a long time in traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine, which is an Indian traditional medicine. And they long believed uh, in the positive power of pepper. Mm-hmm. The positive power of pepper... Um, Three peas. (laughs) I've lost my flow. And uh, yeah, so they had this belief in pepper, and they, in many cases, may have been right, actually, that it is really good for you. Um, But we also spoke about how Western nations would happily subdue foreign people um, and seeing their Western ideas as superior. Mm -hmm. And in 1835, they actually banned the teaching of Ayurvedic medicine in India, the Mm -hmm. British did. But maybe we need to rediscover some of that lost knowledge. Mm -hmm. And today, pepper is actually being explored as an anti-cancer treatment, Mm -hmm. an anti-inflammatory, and may even help improve your mood. How's your mood now? Tired. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) Uh, 
um, and the Arema is said to even be able to help uh, stroke victims to breathe and swallow. The Greeks and Romans said it aided digestion, and this does also seem to be the case. I actually have another story about Roman medicine. Mm -hmm. There was a doctor called Gallen who suggested boiling pepper in honey to cure stomach problems. Uh, but you didn't eat it. No? Did he smear it on your chest or something? Uh, no, it went in another hole. <laughs> so maybe, maybe, you know how Ramsey has had the Your ears? You know how Ramsey has had the peppercorns in the nose? Yeah. I think they got it completely wrong because it goes up your bum. <laughs> okay. Apparently this caused a lot of pain though. Yeah, are we trying this one as well? Have you made it too? No, I decided not to do this one. But I think I think you'll just get some rings of fire there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but I think that shows that maybe whilst these traditional medicines are something that we could probably learn from, these, these people spent thousands or hundreds of thousands of years mm -hmm. using these plants. Uh, maybe we shouldn't blindly follow all of them and uh, mix them with modern practices and testing. Yes, might be a bit more useful. Um... Okay, so as well as being painful for your bottom, it's uncomfortable for insects too. And a 2008 study by the University of Florida and the US Department of Agriculture have shown that insecticides containing uh, pepperidines, so that's the active chemical in pepper, mm -hmm. um, they're not only as effective as DEET, but they also last three times longer. I think one of them lasts about 70 days. That's really good. Time. So you'd cover your arm in or something and then stick it into a box full of mosquitoes. And uh, see how many bit when you're testing it. It's <laughs> just someone stood there for 70 days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a drip being fed. Um, but one of the most impressive findings is how piperine um, has been shown to help boost the effectiveness of other compounds and medicines, mm -hmm. including uh, cucurin, which is found in turmeric, which you may remember from our very first episode. Yep. So, yeah, it's an enabler of other medicine. So it could have That's really good. powerful effects, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I hope you agree that pepper truly is the king of spices. I think it is. For thousands of years, it's been used as a medicine and a spice. Today, you'll find it in every kitchen, on every restaurant table. And it's taken for granted as something that's always been there and always will be there. It's something almost as common as the air we breathe, isn't it? Mm. But this has not always been the case. It's, it also comes in lots of different, um, like, not exactly shapes and sizes, but you can, like, when we're tasting, there's, like, the mm -hmm. green, red, lots of different things, and you can use it for so many different things. Exactly. And like, we, we, with turmeric, you can still do that, just not quite as many as um, peppercorns and peppers. Yeah, it's incredibly versatile, isn't it? Mm. Well, like um, the recipe you said earlier, how it improves every single meal. Mm. <laughs> um, now, our love of pepper... Not only for its flavour, but also for its value and the riches it's brought as foundational in the building of the modern world. The pioneering sailors who bravely set sail into the unknown built the trade networks that connect the world we now inhabit. Even Columbus, when he sailed west, he took peppercorns with him to show those he met and tell them what he wanted. Mm -hmm. He didn't find it, but many other explorers did. And in the name of pepper and other spices, atrocious acts were committed. So next time you're seasoning your food, take a moment to think about pepper, this incredible spice. For each peppercorn you grind, vow to do a little good in the world to rebalance its history. 
Don't think of it as like crushing the people that were killed. <laughs> oh my god. No, think of it as uh, crushing their dreams. No, no, that's wrong. <laughs> think of it as a way to thank them for everything that they've done for us. Uh-huh. I actually got a lot of this from a book called Pepper, A History of the World's Most Influential Spice by yeah. um, Majorie Shaffer. And I think that's a wrap. Whoop a whoop a whoop type of wrap or whoop a whoop type of wrap? Um, I was thinking more like wrapping paper. Everything's kind of finished and wrapped up nice and neatly. Oh, my mistake. Yeah, don't worry about it. You'll learn. Next, oh, next time I need to come up with a wrap. Okay. To finish off the episode. Oh, that was a yep. bad idea saying that. Okay, that's, that's been recorded can't now. Okay. Can't cut that out yet, so you're going to do a wrap. Um, speaking of promoting episodes, um, we are part of the That's Not Kind of Network. And we have a trailer here from another show called Book Boys, I believe. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Book Boys. Every month, Nadine and PJ tell you all about the books they've been reading and make some recommendations from our old favourites, plus surprise call-ins from authors to talk about the works that they're writing original music, prize giveaways, and more. That's Books Boys on booksboys.com and all good podcatchers. Books Boys. Get it. Buy it. Books. So you go and listen to that. <sighs> because you can never judge a book by its cover, so you have to check it out. <laughs> you can't judge a podcast by its trailer. Oh, oh, or it's cover oh, art. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So thank you very much for listening. I hope you found this an interesting episode, and you know a little bit more about the fascinating history of pepper, and also its amazing medicinal uses. Mm-hmm. But before we leave, where can you find us? Um, you can find us anywhere that you search for us, <laughs> such as Twitter at CurieChildPod, Facebook at CurieChildPod, Instagram at CurieChildPod. Our website, thecuriousofachild.com. Our shop with amazing, sexy merchandise. <laughs> um, shop.thecuriousofachild.com. That's correct, yeah. And also on every single podcast platform, you'll find us too. Just search for the... Curiosity of a Child. That's right, yeah. So thank you very much, and we will chat again <gasps> soon. What? Oh, what? You've what? forgotten me. Where do you find my gaming channel? Oh, yeah, you've got a gaming channel. Anton also had a gaming channel on YouTube. Uh, the curiosity of gaming. Yeah, it's very good. From recording this episode, I've got over a hundred subscribers now, which is awesome. I've nearly got, well, I've got two videos where they have more than one thousand views as well. You have, you have made the big time. Yeah. Yeah. So very well done. Anyway, thank you very much for listening, and um, we will think of another episode. Yep. Bye. Love you. Oh, you're going already. Bye. That's meant to be a kiss slide, it's a bit weird. (laughs) Sorry about that. It's the pepper. Bye. Bye. I think they got it completely wrong because it goes up your bum. (laughs) Okay. Oh, it's stuck in my throat again. Let's just go to the history bit now.